Ash, I know what it's like to feel different. I'm not different, am I? We all are, him especially. But there's something kind of fantastic about that, isn't there? Mm, not to me. I prefer to be an athlete. Hello and welcome to The Letterboxd Show, a podcast about movies from Letterboxd, the social network for people who like to watch movies. Each episode, your hosts, Slim and Gemma, that's me, are joined by a Letterboxd friend for a chat about their four favourite films. That is, the four films you choose as your favourites on your Letterboxd profile. As you listen along, we have links in the episode notes to the movies, lists and people we talk about, so there is no excuse not to add these films to your watch lists. Today, our guest is YouTuber, podcaster, and exceedingly popular Letterboxd member, Karsten Runquist. Good to be here. Karsten's Letterboxd handle is Cursed Boy, and his four favorites are, and I quote, not actual top favorites, just films I'm really into each month. So, for today... For Carson's 89,000 Letterboxd followers and his 475,000 YouTube friends, we're about to reveal his actual four real four favorite films. They are Fantastic Mr. Fox, Synecdoche, New York, Wendy and Lucy, and Climax. Carson, are you ready for this journey we're about to go on? You're Wendy and we're Lucy the dog for this conversation. Oh yeah, I'm I'm very ready for the for the acid to kick in eventually. <laughs> <laughs> One of those films, IMO, is not like the others. Did you uh, think about that as you were watching uh, or seeing these four grouped together like that? I would before? argue they're much more similar than a lot of people think, but we'll. <laughs> We'll, we'll get into that, I'm sure. <laughs> Gemma, Gemma messaged me this morning and uh, she watched Climax and she's like, this this is not an AM movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is pre-breakfast. This is a very yeah. bad idea. Yeah. I, my first screening of that was actually at 11 a.m. Uh, because I was God. so excited to see it that I went to see it in theaters at 11 a.m. It was me and like one other guy. And I, I think we were both like, what are we doing here? I thought you were going to say 11 years of age and I oh. was ready to have <laughs> connections. Con yeah. Continuing a theme on our show of early <laughs> yeah. viewings for movies. Oh my God. <laughs> we should, let's dig in right away. Fantastic Mr. Fox, 2009, Wes Anderson. This is a 4.2 average on Letterboxd. This is already mega high. We're starting <laughs> off with a high rating. 12,000 fans. The Fantastic Mr. Fox, bored with his current life, plans a heist against three local farmers. The farmers tired of sharing their chickens with the Sly Fox seek revenge against him and his family. Walk us through your history with Fantastic Mr. Fox. Do you remember the first time you saw it? Oh, I very vividly remember the first time I saw it. I was, I, I think this was my favorite movie before I even saw it because I saw the trailer for it before movies with my, when I went to go see movies with my parents and um, we weren't like a cinephile family. Like I wasn't that, I didn't know who Wes Anderson was, first of all. Mm. Um, so like we saw the trailer for it and it just looked so different and fun compared to all the other, I guess, animated movies we were seeing. So I was immediately like, this looks 
really great. And then we saw it and uh, I was obsessed. I think I was, I we went to see it the first night it was available to see, which by the way, it was in like an empty theater. It was not the talk of the town, I guess, where I was from. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was my favorite movie then for reasons that it were as simple as like, it looked great. And I thought it was really funny. My parents thought it was funny. So automatically I thought, I was like, yeah, okay, it must be pretty good if my parents like it. But mm-hmm. now that like moving into college, I was like rewatching it and paying more attention to film as I was in like film school. And I was just like, this is a genuinely great movie. Um, it's <laughs> It still holds up a lot, especially because when I was a kid, I, I really empathized with Ash and was like, I, I'm just like him. I'm not good at sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but like nowadays, especially when I was like kind of, growing up and you know was like paying more attention to my behavior and like friendships and stuff i was like i'm way more like mr fox than i thought and i'm just like it's it's a very it's it's crazy how this movie has aged with me and is is not for as much as i've talked about it i still think it's like the best movie ever why are you more like mr fox these days (laughs) i feel like that's like not a good thing to say to be honest i i think there's a lot of like narcissism in him that i i don't think i'm like a full blow i don't think i'm like him i'm not trying to you know move my family that doesn't exist out of a hole but i i still feel like he's his whole thing is that he he has this very like american dad figure also again not a dad but <laughs> I'm seeing a ton of similarities so yeah. far. A ton of similarities yeah. so far. We're both foxes. Chick, chick. But he's very much like this guy who has these <laughs> extremely large goals that are just not attainable. But at the end of the day, does them for the people around him and does them out of love. I'm like, I see a lot of that in myself and in my own father and in like people I know. I'm just like, that's a very real experience um, that I feel like a lot of men, at least in America, uh, attached to weirdly enough just based on like the people i've talked to about this movie i was watching your video on fantastic mr fox which i will have a link to in the episode notes which is amazing and you had one quote that i wrote out that uh stuck with me in that these types of movies you know where it kind of is great for adults but great for kids and is like a, a good family movie you had said in the video that it exposes children to defeat at an early age even if things aren't perfect in the end there are smaller things to appreciate and i think you're absolutely right those are those messages um the more those are in mainstream films especially like all ages or it's i don't want to get pigeonholed into all ages films because it's a little bit more right. than that but those are important messages to get to a young audience for sure. Totally. Yeah. I think I, I really appreciate this movie because he does have this really crazy goal and he doesn't actually do it. You know, they, they actually end up in a worse hole than they were in before, but <laughs> <laughs> they have like new things to appreciate about it. Like they live below this convenience store. And um, he says something about like the apples here, are like plastic or something, or I, I forget like what specifically he says. It's like, yeah, it's not as good as it was before, but it's got like its own new quirks and we have each other. And I think it's, it's so important to have movies like that for kids that are like, yeah, it doesn't like need to be that they don't like need to win to feel fulfilled. I, I mean, it's, it's still like, there's something beautiful about the fact that they still have each other and like they survived the whole thing, regardless of if mm-hmm. they made it, or not. And the canon of Wes 
Uh, and don't forget that this uh, was adapted from Roald Dahl's story um, by Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach, which is quite cool. So in the annals of, of Wes Anderson on Letterboxd, um, most Wes gets better on rewatch, but this particular film, Fantastic Mr. Fox, has significantly grown in reputation over the years, over and above all of his others. The rating has just been on a steady growth spurt. From Jack's facts on Letterboxd, from our, from our lists editor Jack, it recently entered the top 250 of all time. Currently it's mm. at 234. Uh, <laughs> and it's the second highest rated Wes behind the Grand Budapest Hotel. And um, appears on a great number of letterbox lists, uh, including appropriately for this time of year in your part of the world, um, the fantastic autumnal harvest list. <laughs> Movies that give you that warm feeling of fall and its surroundings. I mean, it's truly alongside When Harry Met Sally, the ultimate example. Also sits in the warm hug cinematic universe. Um, pe- people are dancing and it's not great, but that doesn't matter because they're happy. And... Uh, <laughs> Films which end with a fucking kick-ass song which multiplies the greatness Absolutely. of the film. <laughs> man. Oh, man. <laughs> I Yes, I, I actually stole the song. I think it's called um, Let Her Dance or something. When I was in like high school, I put it at the end of like all my short films. And my friends were like, you can't do that for every <laughs> short film. It's even weird to begin with considering Wes did it first. And I was like, but it's such a good ending. Uh, but yeah, it. it's, it's one of the best credit songs. It's so opinion. good. Some of my favorite letterbox hot takes. Uh, um, this one from Jay. Even in animation, George Clooney won't stop assembling teams of specifically skilled, diverse groups for elaborate heists. <laughs> Which is yeah. so gorgeous. And um, and then Laura's in love with the costumes and would wear every single one, but they get even more adorable when you imagine that they were all made by the tiny field mouse Taylor, voiced by Adrian Brody. Yeah, the field mouse is great. I mean, the, the time it takes to do this, and I know you have the YouTube channel, which, I mean, even your Fantastic Mr. Fox video, like, I know how it takes a little while to edit a podcast, but, like, editing that starts to give me hives, like, adding in all those movie <laughs> clips. I'm like, oh, my God, it must take forever. Yeah. So, and you mentioned film school. You mentioned short films. So, what is your background and enjoyment in those areas to someone that maybe just follows your letterbox profile that doesn't know the other kind of like creativity that you're interested in? Like uh, what was your main drive to go to film school and like, and, and maybe even make movies? Yeah, there was like no, never a doubt that I wanted to go into the film industry. Um, I really didn't have any urge to do anything else. Um, and going into film school, I was like, yeah, I'd love to pursue directing. But if that doesn't work out, seeing as though that's a very hard thing to accomplish, I was like, I still just love film and would love to be a part of the industry in any way. And uh, quickly got really into YouTube and just like talking about movies because I was like, I love mm. to talk about films and uh, I, whether it be like a very in-depth analysis or like making fun of something, it's just a lot of fun to me. And then I got really into editing through that. And my concentration in school ended up being for film editing instead of directing, which um, I still would love to pursue. But as of recent, I have been focusing a little bit more on directing and just shot a short film called Dirtbag that is in post production right now, and okay. yeah, it's 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 a lot going on at once. It's like I, I dabble in the directing, and then I'm also like helping these other people edit a short film, also doing YouTube. I basically just kind of like to get my hands dirty in all the uh, every part of film. Right. As of now, I watched yeah. your I watched your um, 
was it He's All That the movie that just came out? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> I watched really? that video that you made about that movie. Oh my god, I wanted to like jump out the window just from seeing the <laughs> clips of that movie. <laughs> You don't. You have no idea what you're in for with that. <laughs> it is crazy. Gemma, how... when are you gonna watch that one? Are you gonna I, add that I'm one to your list? I'm putting it off. I'm putting it off. It's on the list. I'm putting oh it off. Oh my god. Okay. Just before we move on, a, a follow up question about your career, Kasten. Uh, <laughs> what was the movie that made you go? I wanna. I wanna be a filmmaker as opposed to just watch films. It's very embarrassing. Actually, I don't know if this is even that embarrassing, but it was my senior year of high school. I watched American Beauty, which is a good movie. Mm. But looking back at it, I'm like, ah, man, <laughs> I wish I had a different <laughs> answer. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I grew up like very kind of my mom didn't let me watch a lot of like intense R rated like any anything remotely complex. So seeing American Beauty I was like, what the heck is this all about? And um, mm-hmm. it just it just blew my mind. I was like so invested in the, how many turns the film took and how many weird choices it made. Uh, looking back at it, it's like there's a billion other movies that I think do what that does better, but that is the answer to that question. That's <laughs> interesting because I feel like that is a gateway, quote, film mm-hmm. for young people because I remember seeing that when I was younger too and that also had like a real big impact. Like, whoa, movies are really deep like crazy like i'm not expecting this i think it's like an eye-opening film yeah and then you eventually find other movies but yeah in in terms of movies that maybe haven't held up as well that's definitely yeah although having having said that i i still whenever i see a plastic bag blowing in the wind (laughs) that's a beautiful stop and say it's great That is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. (laughs) Speaking of films we never need to watch again. (laughs) Damn. Schenectady, New York. This is Gemma's Moment. 2008, written and directed by Charlie Kaufman. 4.1 average on Letterboxd. Still very high. Uh, high. Almost 7,000 other people have this in their four favorites on Letterboxd. Theater director struggles with his work and the women in his life as he attempts to create a life-size replica of New York inside a warehouse as part of his new play. And man, the love for this movie, I just want to read a quick quote, Litterbox, I think that uh, Jack pointed out. Big thanks to Charlie Coffin for making me have a midlife crisis at 17. That's Kate on Letterboxd. So what was your experience in, in seeing this film from Charlie Kaufman? It, it, this doesn't really happen, and this didn't happen with any of these other movies, but immediately after finishing out finishing it, I was like, this is, without a doubt, like one of the best movies I've seen, and I don't understand anything that just happened. I was like, I'm too dumb to get it, but I was like, <laughs> I feel it. I feel that. Um, <laughs> and I definitely like sat with it for a very long time and then rewatched it I think later that summer and I think it's just one of those movies that came to me at the right time where I was I think this was like two or three years ago I was still in school and was just like very like scared about my career and and self-conscious about my work and blah 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 and this movie I was like this is very this is both very inspiring and also kind of Weirdly enough, like comforting to watch, uh, mm. just in how it, it it is very like big and ambitious. But I feel like the whole point of the movie is to be like, this is all very absurd, and it shouldn't have to matter. Also includes maybe the best ASMR 
of a person trying to create <laughs> oh, saliva in their God. mouth while don't eating. Don't even don't even put it in the edit. Okay. Slim. Okay. Charlie Kaufman is a blind spot for me. I think I've seen Being John Malkovich and I haven't seen the new one mainly because I I maybe there's a stigma, incorrect stigma around his movies that are like he makes weird movies. You know, like one of what weird movies that maybe yeah. like you said, you don't get at first viewing. Um, but there's layers upon layers of meaning that you can interpret from these movies. And Roger Ebert called this the decade's best movie. Wrong. I He's wrong. Didn't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> Jim is ready to box somebody. Yeah. I'm I, I am ready to be convinced. Come on, bring me over. <laughs> Oh, Bring me no. over. She's so See, combative to, right now. She is. <laughs> she is ready to go the in the ring. <laughs> Jenna, what did you think about uh, Synecdoche, uh, New York? Well, it's so funny because Jack, you know, Jack, Jack who gives us facts for the show every week. Um, it's his all-time favorite movie. He watched mm. it four times in a row within twenty-four hours when it oh first came out. Jesus. And, <laughs> And he wrote, I know, I know, can you imagine? And he wrote, I honestly don't know what it's like to come to this movie fresh, so I can tell you. Um, I just, I don't know what it was that put me, like I say, I'm a Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, mega fan. He's the one celebrity I have a photo with. Wow. We had a beautiful conversation about theatre. And what I love about him in this film is that there's a lot of theatre and he he owned a theatre company and uh, loved theatre you know, and so I can see why he was attracted to the the film itself and to the constructions within it. And of course, the production design is incredible. And of course, Charlie's amassed an extraordinary cast of women to surround Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. But my favourite is Adele Lack because she just gets out of there really early on, <laughs> takes off to Berlin. <laughs> She's like, I'm not, okay, here it is. In a nutshell, I'm sitting there two hours of my life watching the work of a man who's managed to amass enough money and people to to make a movie that is yet again, oh my God, I'm so sorry, men, here we go, um, about, about men's uh, problem with death and with realising that they're just not really being looked at all their lives. Mm. And I just feel like, give me something... I get it, I get it. But it should have been a novel, not a movie. I get it. We'll start by talking honestly. And out of that, a uh, piece of theater will evolve. I'll begin. I've been thinking a lot about dying lately. You're going to be fine, sweetie. I appreciate that, Claire. You are, you poor thing. You know, regardless of how this particular thing works itself out, I will be dying and so will you. And so will everyone here. <clears throat> and that, that's what I want to explore. We're all hurtling towards death. Yet here we are for the moment, alive. Each of us knowing we're, we're going to die. Each of us secretly believing we won't. Carson is now feeling like one of his YouTube viewers that is watching a video that he can't he can't agree with. Oh my god. <laughs> isn't See, it time I, isn't it white men's time finally, Gemma, to get their time in the spotlight? <laughs> <laughs> and it does feel like one of those potentially unfilmable movies. You mentioned it being a novel. 
Like if this, I don't know if this is based on a novel, but if I had read the novel, I'd be like, oh, you can't film this. This is way too weird. This is not going to translate well to film. And uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's some truth to that. This is a very hard movie to defend. It's like, re- it's structurally such a mess. I will get down with that. I agree with all of your points. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... <laughs> There's not even a butt. I don't even know what to say. I, I Speaking even... of a dying man who thinks maybe they're not getting what they deserve, we just recently watched All That Jazz, which isn't too dissimilar, but I think we both loved, right? So what did you see, Gemma, in All That Jazz that um, this movie didn't have? Ah. Uh... It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's yeah, you're right. It's a it's an artistic man who's a leader. He's a leader, lots of women surrounding them, facing death. Ah, <laughs> the art is the art is important. And it, you know, and Adele Lack says it. She says, "Why are you doing someone else's version of someone else's play? You should be doing your own thing." And I mm. think that you know, we know that Bob Fosse was a hundred percent doing his own and Gwen Verdon's thing. I enjoy the I enjoy the playfulness. I mean, it must have been an absolute ball for the cast. The the layers upon layers of people playing people, playing people, playing people. I thought that was great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just I'm just really flabbergasted by the people who <laughs> would watch it four times in the f- first twenty four hours. No offense. Apologies to Jack. To Jack. <laughs> yeah, Jack. that's crazy. Listen, I don't can't know. defend himself right now. Yeah, I mean, I would do that with Paddington. So, I mean, that's it. Like, that's it. That's the bottom line, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's switch. Let's switch gears and get back to Carson's YouTube uh, life. Recently, you posted a video about going to the movies alone. You also talked about your mental health benefits of turning off letterbox comments. So I'm actually, you know, obviously super fascinated. You have this, you've amassed this large following on Letterboxd and it always cracks me up. I go on the letterbox, uh, unofficial letterbox subreddit and everyone's like, how do I get more likes? How do I get more likes? It always cracks me up. <laughs> and it, it, for me, it's never been about that. I have, I'm grateful enough to have a community of friends that are also on letterboxd. Mm-hmm. So we kind of see each other's reviews. We make fun of each other in the comments and, and chat with that. But with you, how has having so many followers in Letterbox influenced how you review movies? Does it in the back of your head? Do you worry about like, oh, I got so many people that are going to complain about this, or do you just still free will it and not worry about it? How does that impact you? It's definitely changed the way I uh, do things, especially because I think in 2019 I started going to film festivals where I would be one of like the first 200 people, say, to see like. The Lighthouse or something. So obviously over time, my review gets like pushed to the top. And I think that turned into a snowball. And now because of that mixed with YouTube, it's like my reviews are usually almost always at the top of the pages. And people, I think, just got very quickly annoyed at the fact they're like, why is this guy at the top of every movie? (laughs) Sometimes he has nothing to say, which is true. I love Letterbox. I don't know why anyone would want to be like a Letterbox influencer or aim to do that. Because I'm like, I use this platform as like, at, like most people, as just like a journal and a great place to like log and organize and set up movies that I want to watch, look for new movies to watch. It's just like such a great platform for all of that. I do not use it as a social media site or like YouTube for that record. YouTube is where I do my work. Letterbox is where I will like quickly jot down a thought. And I think the more followers I got, the more pressure there is, I think, to like 
make that top spot of the movie like like do something um but i realized i'm like that's not really i didn't like ask to be at the top of mm. like the pages um that's just like how it is so i'm just like i i've gotten to a point where i just want to like use the platform how i want to use it which is just the same way as anybody else i was looking at the members page on letterbox i think this morning and a, a handful of people have a ton of followers and i was thinking like old school like i'm there are still film critics for newspapers i'm not saying they don't exist but you kind of <laughs> at a certain point you get enough readers you're like an almost de facto film critic you know, and maybe like well, a job you didn't really ask for, but you kind of almost have it because of the amount of readership that you have on Letterboxd. It's very weird because um, because of um, a mix of Letterboxd and YouTube, uh, I've started just applying for press for uh, like film festivals, mostly because of a friend who is also a YouTube film critic convinced me to do it. He's like, listen, you have kind of like you just said, you have like a lot of people like watching and like reading your reviews he's like you might as well like get in on it and mm -hmm. i just realized standing in these press lines at tiff i'm like what the hell is going on <laughs> like this is not <laughs> what am i doing here <laughs> well we're, that's interesting because because when this episode comes out we'll be right in the middle of tiff once again mm -hmm. um and and it's and it's fascinating and brian formo just wrote something about this for us for our festival hq that um the kind of festival hype versus what happens when the wider public and wider mm -hmm. film enjoyers get to see a movie. Yeah. And how do you, and given that you've got that following, how do you, do, is, is, is there a sense of um, whatever I say right now is, is going to be influential either way? I do feel like it's, it, it, especially at TIFF, the one year I did go for press, I was like, this <laughs> this review of Joker is probably going to be seen by a lot of people because not a lot of people have seen Joker yet and everyone wants to know like what I think of Joker and it's just yeah not to say Joker's like a small indie filmer that Todd Phillips has any idea who I am um, but I'm just like it's like there is thought that goes into it I guess it's very complicated though I don't really I'm still kind of just winging it I just I just got a notification. Todd Phillips just unsub from the podcast. Oh no! <laughs> so, Wendy and Lucy, two thousand eight. This has three point eight average. Uh, Wendy, a near penniless drifter, is traveling to Alaska in search of work, and her only companion is her dog Lucy. Already perilously close to losing everything, Wendy hits a bigger bump on the road where a car breaks down. She's arrested, and then her dog goes missing. Right. Kelly Reichardt. Written with her regular collaborator Jonathan Raymond, I this is actually my first movie of hers that I've seen. Believe it or not, this week uh, I've wow. stayed I've stayed clear of the A twenty four fog, the mist <laughs> oh rolling God. in. I've I've settled under it. I'm just so excited powerful. for you, Slim. That means you've still got first cow to come yeah. in your life. Yes, <gasps> yes. I still there's still I think another I have another six to eight months before I can jump in there. The hype is still <laughs> off the charts for that movie. <laughs> But what about you, Carson, with Wendy and Lucy? What was the relationship with this film? Did you have a, a knowledge of her work beforehand or did you just jump head first? I did fall for the A24 fog, whatever it's called. <laughs> I don't, whatever you wanted. <laughs> I, well, I actually watched Old Joy before watching First Cow and thought it was, I was just kind of like, she seems like an interesting, interesting filmmaker and really loved Old Joy just because of how simple 
how short it was. I was like, thank God, a short movie that's like <laughs> barely an hour. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I watched First Cow and was like, this is great. And this was just like, I was going through like this Kelly Reichardt binge last summer and then watched Wendy and Lucy and just was over the moon about it. I'm like, this is a really tragic movie that um, I, it just really stuck with me. I feel like just saying I grew up with dogs is enough to justify why I love this movie so much. There's mm. like, it's like the first movie I've seen that really understands like the human to animal connection that there is. Like it, it just knows why that love exists. And um, yeah, really, really stuck with me the first time. Yeah, it's a, it's a quiet, I think it's even on a quiet character study list, quiet little female character studies list on Letterboxd. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have any idea what I was walking into. And it, it is, there's so many quiet moments, just scenes just kind of play out and sit and let you marinate on them. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of spoiler territory. So if you haven't seen this, maybe fast forward a minute or two. Um, so I also have grown up a dog lover. I have dogs. Would you have given up the dog at the end of this movie? You'd be good. I'll come back. I'm gonna make some money and I'll come back. Oh man, I, that is like such a brutal scene and question to ask me. I, I don't really. Oh my God. I mean, it's the right thing to do. And the movie would not make any sense if she kept the dog, right? Because it's like, right. I feel like Wendy's whole like philosophy and the reason she's like doing this trip, I feel like it would be contradictory to keep mm -hmm. the dog. Um, so I don't know. I. I yeah, I, I probably would have left the dog too. I'd been like, this is what's best for her, which is just so sad. <laughs> oh my God. Are you making us cry here, Slim? <laughs> Honestly, I can't. Listen, I'm just saying, I'm just saying the question needs to be asked. Like I grew up, I think I was one of those people who would say, why does that homeless person have a dog? They, if they can't, rah, 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 like they shouldn't have a dog. Oh, like that, like that douchebag in the grocery store. That oh my guy God. needs, oh my God. I want him that to get guy. the death. I, he needs his death. Little, his little silver cross around his yeah. neck and his so, so <laughs> as i'm older i don't ask that question anymore because i know the kind of bond between a dog and a person is you know that's it's symbiotic and it could be required for both you know the dog yeah. and the person mm -hmm. so that's why I, actually when i was got to the end of the movie i started to get like annoyed i was like no keep the dog like maybe the dog needs you maybe the dog wants to be with you uh but yeah absolutely powerful ending to this movie mm -hmm. for sure, which I wasn't ready for. Maybe I'm coming to a realization here <laughs> around skin neck to, to knee New York. <laughs> Where, like there you've got all this money thrown at this kind of existential terror. And here you've got a tiny quiet, except for the noise of the traffic, which is just brilliant sound design, by the way, a mm -hmm. tiny quiet film about the, the difference, the difference between you know a decision that a grocery store clerk can make and not, and then and then the difference that having to pay a fifty dollar fine can make on your entire future and whether you can remain a part of this dog's life, and the difference. Here's another spoiler: seven bucks 
from a security guard can make. Just the difference that, you know, the age and state of your car can make to a single life. I love stories like this and um, never rarely, sometimes always that came out last year that are that are totally small, small stories about one single person and and one single day essentially. And yet these are the big stories. These are the stories mm-hmm. that are worth being on the big screen for me. I mean, that's the that's what I love about it. It's so it does so much with so little the same way never rarely, sometimes always does. Like oh you we God, don't really crazy. know what happens after this movie ends or like where Wendy's coming from really or like anything that exists outside of the bubble that is the movie. And Kelly Reichardt doesn't over dramatize anything going on. It's like sometimes just three shots put together to get across what you need to know. And I feel like that's so effective in just like drawing the viewer into what's going on, especially the woods scene. Cause all we really see is her face. It's like, no, there's no sound. Like there's no music. There's nothing to like over emphasize what's, what's happening. It's just like, this is what's going on. And that's, so devastating to experience. There's the sound of a train mm-hmm. and like, and, and when she's rushing around the corner trying to figure out what to do with the car and the dog and the mm-hmm. everything, there's the sound of the traffic. There's like the, the sound of the world rushing by, the sound yeah. of the rest of the world getting on with its business while this mm-hmm. woman who just needs a freaking job and needs yeah. to get to the place where the jobs are. And that amazing line from the security guard, and I know you're going to drop it in, Slim, so I can slightly misquote it, but, you know, he's like... You can't get an address without an address. You can't get a job without a job. It's all fixed. Yeah. I kind of poked fun at A24 earlier with the hype fog and the hype train. Um, but I think it is true that A24 has kind of opened up the doors to smaller films for people that probably would never have watched them, especially on Letterboxd. You know, these films jump to the top of your list, like Pig, or, you know, films like that, that, like, most people would probably, like, never check out. Totally. Like, you can't deny how influential, just, like, not influential, but, like, just how big that logo at the front of your movie can be. Like, it, it's, it's speaking as a young film fan who is, like, just kind of coming around to, like, get to know everything... I agree. I just didn't know who Kelly Reichardt was prior to First Cow. And right. I'm just like, there There are other filmmakers in that camp that I'm just like, I wouldn't have known of what they do if not for this, this company. Mm-hmm. And it is weird that people humanize A24 as like a, a director. They're like, A24 must have been on drugs when they made this movie. I'm like, they didn't make the movie. Um, what was that? I saw like a but, viral tweet this week of like someone was in screening a movie and A24's logo came on and someone like yeah, cheered, cheered and hollered and they got booed or something. The I'm like, get out of here. In the, in the context of the pandemic, uh, Kelly... It's a beautiful film, but she was really hard done by. You know, it just it was just about to land in theaters, or it had just opened for about a week or two, and then you know, early 2020, the entire globe went to pack, and then there was a, a brief moment, a brief shining moment there, wasn't there, when cinemas reopened and they mm. they tried to bring it back, and it yeah, anyway, justice for First Cow. Maybe you know, maybe so I will I, because the next movie on our list, I was also wrong about Climax 2018. Uh, my dear friend Ian told me about this movie like a year ago, two years ago. He's like, oh, you got to see this movie. You got to see this movie. And I'm like, yeah, okay. 
and I push it to the side and I finally watched it this week. Holy moly. Young dancers <laughs> gather in a remote and empty school building to rehearse on a cold and wintry night. The all night celebration soon turns into a hallucinatory, hallucinatory nightmare when they learn that their sangria is laced with LSD. Average rating of 3.8. This has 2,000 other fans that have this in their four favorites. Uh, what a trip. Tell us about uh, your your climax film entering your top. Five. <laughs> I don't know if that was the way to say that, but <laughs> I just like felt you had, right. You had other ways to say that. <laughs> it's all yours. Yeah. Um, I. This was okay. This is. This sounds like a stretch, but this is very much like my college version of Fantastic Mr. Fox, where it's a. <laughs> Okay, um, <laughs> it's a movie that I was like really excited for. I like knew of Gaspar Noé. Didn't think he was like a great director. I was just more like interested in him. I was like, he's there's something about him that like is intriguing. He makes very bold, violent films. And when I heard that this was like the first film that didn't get like insanely walked out of at Cannes, and like people actually really liked it, and it was. It's uh, like 90 minutes. I was like, okay, this this is sounds pretty cool. Um, so I was like really excited. Went to the 11 a.m. screening, and yeah, I, I I think this is both his like boldest film and also the one that stays on the tracks the the most. Because I feel like him and his him as a director, he just like kind of loses focus of what the point of his movies are are after a while, and gets lost in like these really pretentious like not profound at all themes that he's trying to tackle. I feel like love is a great example. It's like nothing going on there. But climax feels like just purely style for the sake of making a really terrifying horror movie that in my opinion is like the horror movie that I've always wanted about something that really freaks me out. And I've seen it like six or seven times now and I... Really love this movie. This this is a movie. I think I just remembered why I probably put it off at first because I had seen Irreversible at in the year in the early two thousands when I was working at a video store, and I remember just being having like you know, I think I had like PTSD from that experience. Yeah. So that might have put me off from this film, and maybe other people like that. But with that said, first twenty minutes of this movie, holy cow, that dance scene, and then the just continued take of the party mm-hmm. starting off like. Many, many points of this movie, I was just in awe of the filmmaking. Yeah. Something I did know going into it was that apparently the script for this movie is like three pages long or something. <laughs> he just like Jeez. gave the actors kind of a basic rundown of like what happens in this movie and let them improvise for a lot of it. And I think, and they're actual dancers too. I knew that going into it. And you really f- kind of feel that in the movie. It's very loose and real in that sense. And it just kind of leaves room for the camera and like all the technical elements to really come alive. And yeah, seeing it in a theater, I was just taken aback. It's it's one of those movies where you don't realize until like five minutes later that you like haven't been breathing for <laughs> a <laughs> yeah. minute now. I've never wanted to run to learn about the production of a film so quickly <laughs> as I did with this one. Especially that there's like 42 minute shot. I mean, it sort of sits in, I was thinking, 
I hope this isn't a list somewhere with one cut of the dead and, you know, a whole mm. bunch of other horrors mm. where that the action is just played out in the in the lens rather than mm-hmm. rather than cutting for who's seeing what at which time and bringing in the noise. It's it's just all happening in front of you, right? And yeah, so it's a it's apparently based on uh partly based on a true story about a troupe of dancers who had a party and their punch was spiked with LSD. But that's all that happened. They were just all a bit out of it. And then the things things that happened in the movie didn't happen. So I love the element of what if that mm-hmm. Gaspar mm. has taken from that very real experience and then thrown in here. And it was like a 15-day shoot. Mm-hmm. They just got everyone everyone into this kind of remote school in the snow and and went for it. It's just, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's so, my God, it's like a... um. Rube Goldberg machine of human yeah. horror. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> I think maybe like 40, the 40 mark or whenever the kind of realization sets in, I started to get like hardcore hereditary vibes and I loved hereditary. So this like, in my review, I said that this was like hereditary, but instead of grief and occult, it's drugs and dancing. Mm-hmm. And like those, both of those viewings, I just felt like my hands were clasped like the whole time. And mm-hmm. maybe I didn't blink for like 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's just something about, uh, it's like hard to describe because these could be considered movies that you never really want to see again, depending on how you enjoyed the movie. But there's something about like realistic drama that is just so like bad, like the situation is so bad that just turns to horror. I don't know. It's like hard to explain. It's like a different form of horror. Um, mm-hmm. where it just feels so real and so scary because it yeah. could happen to you. I don't know. How did you feel at those tense moments in the movie? Well, I think I I was just extra scared of this because I'm someone that, <laughs> go figure, I'm like very terrified of drugs and the idea, like even weed, I'm like, I can't do it. I don't like the idea of not being in control. And this whole movie is about a bunch of dancers who are usually very in control of their bodies like losing that control um, and all of their awareness. And it's, I I thought that was just a subject that scared me as is, but for him to do it and to be so aggressive with the camera work, I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. I think that's, that's what makes it so terrifying to me is that it doesn't really feel like it's ever going to stop. And Mm. it doesn't feel like you have any say in anything that's going on here, which is obviously like, that's all, the movies film really puts that on full display, I guess, especially that, that final like 20 minutes where the camera goes upside down and you're like, Oh my God. Okay. Let's, let's end it. And it doesn't stop. (laughs) I'm just like, (laughs) how about when when the sun reappears next to the punch ball later? Well, I was just going to, Oh my God. I was just going to say they throw a few things in there. Don't they? They throw a few, a few things in there. They throw in a kid, they throw in a pregnancy, they throw in some uh, gender and queer and sex stuff. And so so while everyone's happy and really excited about the third day of rehearsal and how good the performance is looking, you, you sort of don't realise that these stakes are being raised really mm-hmm. cleverly yeah. by the presence of a child and by the presence of just kind of menace, sexual menace and, mm-hmm. yeah, a, someone else who's, you know, got a whole vial of Coke over there and isn't sharing it. And yeah. anyway, have I ever told you guys about the first time I dropped acid? 
I thought you were going to say Coke for a second. I was like, God damn, all right, let's get into it. Yeah, the, one, of the, one of the reviews that got called out here, I think from Jack, is this is the longest anti-drugs advert I've ever seen from Aaron. Um, yeah. Also, I mean, Pretty just this, the realization, I want to call out, seen a call out of the mother when she realizes that it's been spiked with LSD and my son is in this building. Yeah. Like, holy crap. And she mm-hmm. decides to lock him into a room, The only, I guess the only one, one with a lock. That is some insane stuff. That, that reminded yeah. me of like the scene in Hereditary where his hands are still on the steering wheel. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, oh my God, like I can't believe this is happening. It's just too weird. Paralyzing. But it's got those like nice moments too, though, where (laughs) (laughs) tell us about them. (laughs) I don't even think this is just like this is a very necessary breath of fresh air in the movie. But it's when um, Sophia Butella, I think that's her name, Mm -hmm. the the main dancer. She goes into that red room and starts like freaking out, like just starts screaming at walls. And my favorite is when she puts her her hands in the in the tights oh and just God. can't get out. <laughs> um, that is insane. I love her so much. And by the way, she's in Prisoners of the Ghost Land with Nicolas Cage, which you must see. Oh if you wow! Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's wow. I did not know that. But she sees like that tr- that wallpaper with all the trees, and it's like so. It's like being hit with like a waterfall or something. She feels so good, and something about how long that scene plays out it just you you feel it with her and it feels like a really nice break from everything else that's going on <laughs> if if it did feel like a really like i was seeing some really cool interpretive dance slash acting in those moments mm-hmm. you know that there was yeah. like a, this was probably a really freeing experience to film that i did totally. like the kind of camera trickery in that hallway where there was like one spot where there's no light so that you could kind oh, of yeah. like go through and then that could be your cut i thought that was pretty smart <laughs> Yeah. Well, it feels like um, that cli- climax was the climax of your four favorites, but maybe not enough of a climax for this particular episode of the Letterbox <laughs> Show. So, oh, so man. we like to do something we call stats diving. Yep. Carsten's most popular review. Do you know what your most popular review is? Oh man, I think it's the portrait of a lady one. I could be wrong though. Am I right? Yeah, you're nice. right. Nice. Nice. Wow. <laughs> Third most favorite is is my personal favorite of yours, which is your one sentence on the lighthouse, which is simply they should start a podcast. I mean, (laughs) it's just it's a thing of beauty. But portrait of a lady on fire. You ever find yourself staring at a bonfire, just zoning out and watching the flame change every second, feeling the heat, the energy, the anger, the tension. You get what I'm saying. It's a beautifully hypnotic thing. And that's exactly what Portrait of a Lady on Fire is. The only difference being that this brought me to tears in a way a bonfire never could. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny. It's beautiful. I'm not laughing because yeah. it's funny. But who didn't cry at Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Did you go to see that in theaters when it came out? I did. I, well, I saw it at TIFF my first time. I oh. made the biggest mistake of my life. I was at Cannes with my friends, and they were all like, we're going to go see Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I was like, okay, I'm going to stand in line for Tree of Life um, by Terrence Malick. Oh my God. And uh, I ended up not even getting into the screening. So I just like wandered oh, around Cannes alone while all my friends came out of Portrait of a Lady on Fire and they were like, that was the best thing I've ever seen. It was just really off. So I was like, oh. okay, apparently I got to see that one. <laughs> yeah, what a great what a great experience it's, that movie yeah. was. I, I was lucky yeah. enough to see that in theaters uh, at the Ritz in Philadelphia. 
And I went with uh, Proto, my co-host on 70MM, and we both were like looking at each other after that movie in our seat. (laughs) Yeah, that was like our date night, going to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire (laughs) together. And it was just a great, fantastic experience. Yeah. I bought the Blu-ray of that. Oh man, Mm -hmm. I've seen that one a few times. Oh my God. I've got the poster. It's the only movie poster I have. Yeah. It's a great poster too. We have this other we have this other new feature on Letterboxd. I don't know if you've looked into it since we launched it, but it's called Rated Higher Than Average. There's also a rated lower than average. And it's where we get I've to find it, out. Yeah. <laughs> have you have you ever looked at what you've rated higher than the Letterboxd average? No. I'm it's quite cool. I mean, you're not the you're not the first person on this you're not the first person on this podcast to have rated pop star never stop, never stopping. Five stars when the average is like 3.5. <laughs> You're all good there. But there's, yeah. a, there's a few others. Um, there's a fun one called Greener Grass, which I've actually seen. I think you and I must be some of the few who have seen this. I wouldn't have given it a five, mm-hmm. but I definitely had a good time. Why did this film get a five from you? Well, I, I thought it was, um, I saw it at Sundance for the first time. Um, cause I heard like rumors about it at the festival. They were like, this is the weirdest thing you'll ever see. And that year at Sundance in particular, I was watching a lot of like really sad movies. So going to this like midnight screening of greener grass, I was like crying, laughing for some reason. I was like, this is, this is phenomenal. And I don't know, watching it, I think twice since then, I've thought it was just as funny. It's like really... <laughs> It's like if David Lynch didn't take himself that seriously and just kind of like tried to have a lot of fun. And yeah, I, I will watch that movie any day and have a great time. This is probably one of the most insane letterboxed backgrounds <laughs> images that I've ever seen. I just clicked on the movie. And it's this two mouth braced mouths with saliva oh. connecting the two mouths. <laughs> oh yeah, you want ASMR involving mouths and saliva. <laughs> I would go green and grass over connecting. Me, New York. (laughs) (laughs) It's so much fun. It's such a weird and wacky, wacky, wacky film. Mm -hmm. I was actually spotlighting the rated lower than average, which is right under that section. Uh, uh, uh. Um, uh, Funnily enough, Irreversible is on there since I mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Godzilla, half star. The uh, the new legendary (laughs) one. Wow. Yeah, that was was a high school memory. I don't really think, I don't remember anything. Here's, I was going through a big Breaking Bad phase at the time. And when they killed off Brian Cranston, like 30 minutes in, I was like, why am I still watching this? But yeah, looking back at it, I would probably, I'd probably change that. I I call those ratings before Letterboxd, BLB ratings that you don't really remember seeing, but you have a vague memory and it's going to come back to bite you in the ass when someone finds the rating. Absolutely. I just want to say that um, the other thing your stats show us is that the 1960s is your highest rated decade in film. Mm-hmm. I noticed that, yeah. Yeah. I, so I really like the 60s. <laughs> off the top of your head, can you give us like two or three films from the 60s that you would encourage anyone who's still listening, if I haven't turned them off with my <laughs> with my Kaufman rant, uh, to, to, to go out and track down? I would say Playtime is the first one that comes to mind. Speaking of mm. Rube Goldberg machines, oh my God, I'm sorry, but you're a Tati fan too? I'm a huge Jacques just, Tati fan. Oh, um, oh my God. I considered s- selecting, because Playtime's like just on the edge of my top four, especially after I saw it a second time in theaters. I was like, God damn, this movie is the best. And I chose Synecdoche, New York instead. <laughs> um, <laughs> you just redeemed yourself. But Playtime is is probably 
my first uh, recommendation just because I love that movie a lot. The next one would be um, I'm looking at my list right now to double check. Oh, The Swimmer. The Swimmer is this one movie by Frank Perry that stars uh, Burt Lancaster. And that was I watched that in the pandemic and really enjoyed it. It's about a man who like has Mm. to keep going through neighborhood swimming pools to get to like some final destination. It's really weird, but it's like really interesting. <laughs> My God, um, this photo of Bert in the background. Right. Yeah. Real. The jawline is indescribable. <laughs> yeah. Holy moly. Oh, and last one is uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg by ah. Jacques Demy. That's, I just watched that for the first time and really fell in love with it. I just want to say quick call out Props to the Criterion channel because just about every movie you've mentioned is available right now on yeah. the Criterion channel for, for those in the, the States probably. Sorry, Gemma. <laughs> if you had one more suggestion to close out the show, a movie that maybe people should spotlight, maybe it's not getting a fair shake or maybe not enough people are watching it uh, that you've seen, maybe thanks to Letterboxd over the last year, does any jump to mind that you would want to get people to, to check out? I will plug this one just because it's recent and I also really wanted to hear you guys' thoughts on it based on what you were saying about Synecdy New York but Annette uh, I really I liked that more than most people I know but I think everyone should give it a chance because I think it's really weird in a really enjoyable way and Adam Driver does a lot of great things. I just saw that that is now in your rotation for Letterbox yeah. favorites. I think that's number one. I have it's, not seen it yet. I know it's available on Prime in the U.S. at least, mm-hmm. but it's on my watch list. It's one of those that you were talking about where I didn't love it that much the first time I saw it. I was like, that was interesting, but it has not left my head. I cannot stop mm. thinking about it. And I'm like, this was actually probably a really great movie. <laughs> Gem, have you seen it yet? I I, I uh, let my screener expire. Oh. Um, oh. <laughs> only... <laughs> Only because it all happened around the time that we, you know, suddenly Delta came to our shores and we had to lock everything down. And anyway, I will get to it and I'm looking forward to it. And I find it interesting what you do and do withhold about a movie when you're trying to tell people to see it. And all anyone needed to say to me was, there's a puppet in it. And nice. I, I would be there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to The Letterbox Show. And thanks to our guest this episode, Karsten Runquist. You can follow Slim, that's me, Gemma, and our HQ page on Letterboxd using the links in our episode notes. Thanks to our crew, Composing Dynamos, Moniker, for the theme music, Vampiros Dansotech. And thanks to Jack for the facts, and to Linda, our booker, for looking after our guests, and Sophie Shin for the episode transcripts, and of course to you for listening. The Letterbox Show is a tape deck production. If you're enjoying the show and have guest ideas, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to Ben Jessup for his Apple Podcast review. Big fan of the Letterboxd app and podcast. And that's the show. We're all hurtling towards death, yet here we are, for the moment, alive. (laughs) So positive. understand what you're saying and your comments are valuable but i'm going to ignore your advice the cuss you are the cuss am i are you cussing with me no you cussing with me
Don't cuss and point. You're going to cuss with somebody. You're not going to cuss with me, you little cuss. Just by the tree. Okay. This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Thank mm-hmm. you.